the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a very pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is, of course, your basic Thursday, the 7th of September. And uh, welcome to another edition of Lifeline. All right, let's get right down to cases. First, an update. We've been following the progress of Hurricane Irma. That is now the second such major Category 4 or higher hurricane to make its way through, impacting the United States. Of course, the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey still being felt in Texas. And now Floridians facing the possibility of major damage to both coasts of Florida, potentially as early as Saturday. Let's first get an update. Florida Governor Rick Scott warning about the devastating impact that the hurricane could bring. This is a catastrophic storm their state hasn't seen. It's already killed a lot of people in the uh, Caribbean. Don't think you can ride out this storm. Every Florida family must prepare to evacuate, regardless of the coast you live on. We are 100% focused on making sure every Floridian and all of our visitors have timely information on this storm. Right now, there are mandatory evacuation orders in effect for the Florida Keys. This means all residents and visitors leave the Keys. Regardless of which, which coast you live on, be prepared to evacuate. The storm can move and change on a moment's notice. Floridians on the West Coast cannot be complacent. Wow, and certainly that is very true as they're anticipating the possibility of, as we heard last night, that hurricane making a 90-degree turn, perhaps somewhere north of Miami and literally cutting across the state. There is a perspective to this that goes beyond the input of meteorologists and FEMA personnel and the Red Cross, and that is the spiritual perspective on events of this sort. Now, to be sure, while it's not impacting any of us here in California, we've certainly had our own string of disasters here in our own state, everything from flooding earlier this year due to the heavy California rains following six years of continuous drought, to the wildfires that continue to burn both north and south of us. Any of these events, any of these natural disasters that bring about not just devastation, but loss of life, also bring about many questions. From a Christian perspective, how do we go about answering when people question where is God in all of this? Or why would God allow this to happen? Or worse still, why would God do something like this? As we seek to try and understand what is oftentimes difficult for even the most uh, spiritually attuned believer to fully comprehend and to share, we thought we'd spend a moment tonight dealing with that very issue. And I think much of what we'll learn here is apropos not only when it comes to being ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within when there are major disasters like hurricanes and uh, Hurricane Irma or um, Harvey, but also to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within any time there is a a loss that someone has suffered, and we wish to be able to give witness for Christ. Joining me is Sam Rohrer, president of the American Pastors Network. Sam, by the way, also is the host of Stand in the Gap, now heard nationally on more than 40 radio stations across the country. And Pastor Rohrer, always a delight to have you join us on the program. I know this is a question that we as Christians, certainly no matter the level of maturity uh, that we have in Christ, always grapple with. We look at disasters like this and we think, gee, those poor people, why are they going through this? What has happened? And it's difficult sometimes to be able to give that answer, especially when a non-believer is raising the question, generally in a pretty accusatory tone, toward God himself. Well, Craig, I think you're correct. And, um, you know, without, uh, truly without an understanding of who God is and, and how he interacts with uh, humankind and, and the role that he plays, uh, in the control of nature, uh, makes de- dealing with these kinds of circumstances um, extraordinarily difficult. 
and frankly, they're difficult to deal with anyways when when destruction of the kinds of levels that we are seeing uh, come about. And so, um, but one one thing that uh, that I would take people to immediately is the fact that um, that that our understanding of God will absolutely dictate our response to difficult times, such as we're seeing. But I would also say it also dictates our view towards how we respond to times of um, great blessing and prosperity. And, uh, and oftentimes, uh, uh, prosperity and good times uh, are actually, in many regards, uh, more difficult uh, to deal with, uh, because we believe and we sense that our dependency on God is not really necessary because we don't really need Him. Uh, disasters of this type should cause everyone to ask much deeper questions, and that's why some uh, will reach out and angrily uh, accuse God of being uh, unloving. But on the other hand, um, a believer, one who trusts in Jesus Christ and knows Jesus Christ as a personal Savior, knows that God is a God of a God of justice. He's also a God of love and mercy. But uh, but our confidence is in a God if we know Him as Jesus Christ, know Him as our Savior. Note that He's a sovereign God, and that God's ways are above our ways. And not always can we fully understand everything that God allows to happen, and that's where we must trust Him by faith, knowing that His sovereign plan, in fact, is working for good. That's why Scripture does say that all those who who, who believe uh, in Him uh, and, and are obedient, we know that all things work together for good to them who love Him and who are called according uh, to His purposes. So uh, that's a confidence that every believer should have, and it really should be, and it's one of my prayers uh, uh, for God's people, for those who know Him in all of these devastated areas, that, that God would give them an unwavering faith, and that even in difficult times, as Job of old did when he lost his children, lost his possessions, uh, responded uh, very humbly before God and said, The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now that's the response that I would pray that I would have if confronted by circumstance of, of these types, and that every believer would have. Uh, and, and, it's, and it is possible for that to take place. But it, it, it really comes down to, Craig, to our view of God. If we know who God is and have a personal relationship with Him, we can have a level of trust and faith that, uh, that rises beyond even the worst of circumstances. Without the Lord, there is no hope. But my prayer is that these kinds of circumstances would drive a person to understand and consider, perhaps maybe for the first time, who God is. Don't we also perhaps under these circumstances need to take a bit of a step back to look at the bigger picture? And I ask that question because oftentimes there is a lack of of ongoing acknowledgement or understanding that at the end of the day we live in a fallen world that sin reigns as a result of what happened in the garden. And some people are quick to try and either assign blame or take all of this personally. Why is God doing this to me? Why did God let this happen to me? And yet Scripture reminds us that the rain, literally in this case, falls on both the just and the unjust, and that the bigger picture here is that we are having to to live in the result of sin in a fallen world, and that under those conditions, things like this will happen. Uh, <clears throat> Craig, I think that you made a very, very good point there, and, uh, and I think it's really critical to understand. If one looks at the Scripture, look at the Old New Testament, particularly the Old Testament, uh, and I go there often for how God worked with the nation of Israel. It's really the pattern for how God works through nations, but most all of the promises you will find in the Old Testament, more often than I don't have a number on this, but more often than not, they are national promises. They are promises for national prosperity, national blessing, uh, or national judgment. That's the other side of the equation. 
And, and within that, God's prom- God promised Israel, if you obey me, I will make you to prosper. I will give you great wealth when he took them into the land. And our founders understood this, and they believed that in this country, that, that them coming here to this nation was very much like Israel going to the promised land. And, and, and God told them, I'm going to give you, to a new, I'm give you a new land, and I'm going to give you houses, I'm going to give you wealth, I'm going to increase your herds, and I'm going to, do, I'm going to give you security from your neighbors. I'm going to give you rain when the time comes. I'm going to give you uh, dry weather and harvest time. All of those things are results of God's blessing, he said, but he did tell Israel that he warned them, do not, do not, when those times of prosperity come, as a result of my blessing, do not think at those times that the blessings and the good times that you have, your wealth and all of that, that you got by your own hands for at which point you believe that you did it by yourself, my blessing will turn to judgment on you as a nation. And all the way through the Old Testament, we find that. So, so should a person look at these natural disasters that you called out, fires at times, droughts at times, now these major hurricanes and all of these things, the ground shaking in places in the part of the country, and, and say, are these just purely natural, or are they, in fact, uh, should they cause us, as, as, as people in this country, to look to God and say, is God telling us something as a nation that we have walked away from him as a nation, that we have claimed good to be evil and evil to be good uh, as a nation? Have we? And the answer, is, the answer is clearly, yes, we have. And so I look at these things, and I don't think you can look at them in, uh, individually. These are collective items as a nation. And so I look, Craig, and say, you know, you could say, well, why did God take that hurricane down to Houston? Well, Houston City Council did do some very immoral things. You could say, well, God was chastising Houston. Well, so did, so did some things happen in Miami. You could perhaps say that. But I think far more than that. These are warnings to us as a nation, whether we live in Florida or on the southeast or we live in Texas or we live in where the fire's taking place. We shouldn't think that these are independent, uh, designed by God just for certain people in certain areas. These are warnings, as God told Israel, uh, would be messages and signals and warnings from God himself to the nation as a whole, and really, Craig, that begs the question, how should we as Americans be responding? Well, and this, of course, also begs another important question, um, Pastor Rohrer, and that is this, that, that sometimes we are in a such a rush to try and come up with an answer that we want to be able to either provide a comfort or maybe somehow convince uh, our, our, our potential listeners, I don't mean literally on the radio, but people that, that individuals are speaking to, that we have some kind of an inside track or channel on exactly what God had in mind here. I found it interesting that in the weeks and months following the devastation of Hurricane Katrina down, oh, it was a decade ago now, 12 years ago, in Louisiana, that somebody took the time to take note that there were more churches destroyed as a result of Hurricane Katrina than there were bars and nightclubs in the French Quarter, somehow suggesting that those that early on said this was the judgment of God now mean, well, yes, and the judgment of the Lord, of course, begins in his own house. So it it, it is an interesting conundrum that we find ourselves in when we try to, I think, uh, too refinely define exactly what it is that God intends without taking a moment to step back, as I said a moment earlier, and look at the bigger picture here, whether it be devastation in Houston or in Florida or in California with the fires right now, that there's a bigger picture here in terms of not just God's sovereignty, but man's relationship to him. When we come back, I want to have you extrapolate also on something that you you came to the razor's edge of just a moment ago, and that is the, the suggestion that somehow um, we're not deserving of any of this and that God is going to be obligated, listen to my words, obligated to make it all right. Recently, as recent as last Sunday, Joel Osteen in Houston got up in his church's pulpit and said that Houston victims of the storm 
um, should allow their faith to work to, quote, allow God to turn circumstances around. Allow God? Really? Were Stowe to say that we should pray and thank God that he, quote, will pay back what belongs to us. Wow. Come back to more of our conversation with Pastor Sam Rohrer as this edition of Lifeline continues. Get a look at traffic right now, though. Get caught up on things here over at the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael Bennett's got the latest. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Struggling to give an answer when devastating natural disasters occur to bring not only a sense of perspective, but but hopefully to be able to share a sense of comfort and to share our faith with others. Well, that's the topic of our discussion today. One of the things that kind of laid me back on my heels um, was word early this week that on Sunday, barely a week after the devastating hurricane had rolled through Houston, um, Joel Osteen got up in the pulpit of Lakewood Church there in Houston and said, and I'm going to quote here, we're not going to understand everything that happens, but having a poor old me mentality or look what I lost or why did this happen, you know, that's just going to pull you down, said Osteen on Sunday. He told Houston victims of the storm that faith will, quote, allow God to turn situations around, close quote. And worse still, said, quote, let's not have a victim mentality. Let's have a restoration mentality. Lord, we thank you that you're going to pay back what belongs to us, close quote. Pastor Sam Rohr, boy, I, I'm... I realize that he has a reputation for being a word of faith preacher that has absolutely no CV when it comes to theolo- theological education. But I, I, I don't know whether he's trying to provide comfort here or somehow suggest that God has done something wrong, but that's okay if we just have faith that will allow God to right that wrong and make sure that he gives back to us what belongs to us. Wow. I don't even understand the exegesis behind that. Well, you know, I don't either, and, uh, and, and frankly, uh, Craig, I, I think that that kind of a response is an extraordinarily dangerous response. And this is why I say that. We often quote Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and go through that, go through that verse... We, as God's people, often will claim that verse almost as a rabbit's foot, almost as some miraculous last-minute miracle, that when things get too bad, we can pull out 2 Chronicles 7.14, and God will make all things right. What we don't often quote is the verse that that appears right before that in 7.13. And in 7.13 is what God was answering Solomon when he prayed seven prayers to God, envisioning the sins of the nation of Israel, things that they would do, walking away from him, getting involved in idolatry, a whole host of things, things that he envisioned that they would do that, in fact, they did do. And he said, in every case, he prayed, if they repent and they come back to you, will you receive them again? And God ultimately answered those seven prayers of Solomon in 713 by saying this, when I send pestilence, when I send uh, withhold rain, the drought, God said, I control this weather. When I do these natural events, these natural disaster events, when you see me do these things, and you look to me, then he said, and then, if my people, my people, who are called by my name, say the Christians, shall do what? Not say, God, give me back what I own, but says to God, I have wrongfully claimed to be mine what you gave me, and humble myself and pray and seek my faith and turn around and repent of our wicked Ways And that really was, he's speaking about idolatry, it's trusting in things uh, instead of God. That is when that verse was given, and 
it's as if God is saying that to America today. And what's ironic about that passage of Scripture, Pastor, is that for many, many years, I have heard that quoted out of context, usually directed with a preamble of, yes, you sinners, you secularists, you feminists out there that have offended a holy and righteous God, you need to repent. And then we rush on to, quote, Second Chronicles 7.14, completely absent of the fact that that passage of Scripture is not directed toward the unbeliever or the unchurched, but in fact is directed specifically toward the people of God. And I find it interesting that God is not saying in that passage, tell the sinner to turn and repent from their evil or wicked ways, but rather if my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Wow, that really does take us back full circle to that notion that judgment begins in the house of the Lord, doesn't it? It, it absolutely does, and that is why the kind of counsel that you were just citing there that's saying, hey, God's going to give us back uh, if we think positively and give us what we own and is ours, we don't have anything that doesn't come from God. And doesn't, the, doesn't that mentality, to too, p- pardon the interruption, but doesn't that mentality, too, tend to also mischaracterize the very character of God, and I ask that question because you could say something like that to a young, fragile believer that, oh, yes, God, in fact, is going to pay back to you what belongs to you. Well, what if it happens that that doesn't happen? What if the car doesn't get restored? What if the insurance lapsed and you don't get the house rebuilt? Do we then automatically turn and shake our fist toward God and say that God has now shortchanged us? And what does that do in terms of mischaracterizing the character of God? I think you're, I think you're exactly correct. If it weren't for God's mercy extended to us in the person of Jesus Christ and salvation, we would be, we would be committed to an eternal hell. We deserve nothing except eternal punishment. That's the mercy of God, and when God in His mercy grants to us blessings of the type that we have had and enjoyed in this country for generations, prosperity and security and wealth, our herds have increased, all of those things that God told Israel, when that happens, it's because of the goodness of God, but it depends on the obedience of God's people, Craig, to following in the fear of God and doing what He says. As a nation, we've walked away from him. If God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin, how can God not judge the United States of America? And the only ones that can, that can change the, the hand of God in judgment are God's people, and they're only going to happen. It's only going to happen when they repent of our dependence on self, our idolatry, instead of worshiping and depending. I think it's a great time to look at our coins right now, Craig, and say, it says, in God we trust, and ask ourselves the question, are we trusting in God now or in something else? That should be a wake-up call to every person in America, and I think these things that are happening may be for many reasons, but they at least should drive every believer and every God-fearing citizen, when they look at that coin, to say, And what am I trusting in these times? If it's not God, then we know what's up. And when we're trying to give a sense of comfort to somebody who has suffered a loss, yes, we're talking about 3,500 miles away in the case of Florida and about half that in the case of Texas. But many of us have friends, connections, and family and friends that are in these areas that have been impacted by the devastation of Harvey or potentially soon um, the hurricane rolling through Florida on Sunday, uh, to be careful, to provide comfort. But how can I put this politely? Oh, why be polite suddenly at this stage in my life? Don't be an idiot about it. And, And by that, I mean, let me quickly clarify. By that, I mean, sometimes you want to come up with words and platitudes to try to make things better. And we don't realize that we're not speaking the truth. We don't realize that we are, in fact, doing more harm than good. For a pastor to get up in a pulpit and say that God is going to pay back what belongs to us, what belongs to us? Nothing belongs to us. We don't deserve the shirt on our back. That, in fact, as believers, our very life has been bought with a price 
We are deserving of nothing other than what Pastor Rohr mentioned a moment ago, punishment and damnation for having offended a holy and righteous God. That is man's fallen sin condition. That's what belongs to us is eternal punishment. And so everything that we have we should look at as an absolute blessing from God that when losses happen, it isn't necessarily because I've got good bad faith. It isn't necessarily that I don't have enough faith. Because as we've learned, the rain falls on both the just and the unjust. But the bigger picture in any of these large catastrophic events, and I like the references that you shared earlier from an Old Testament perspective. You look, for example, at the locust coming and, and consuming all the crops. They're talking about a major disaster, right? People are starving. What do they do? This is a major disaster that Israel is facing. In there can be a message of God saying, wait a minute, remember from whom your bounty flows. So when these things happen, we must be mindful and remind others in a loving, gentle fashion, don't make up things that aren't in Scripture, Joel Osteen. Preach the truth in love and remind people from whom our protection and bounty flows. And yes, the coinage in our pocket is a good way to be reminded of that. Let's pause for a moment. When we come back, I want to turn another corner as we continue our conversation. Pastor Sam Rohrer is with us today. He, of course, is the president of the American Pastors Network, hosts the nationally syndicated Stand in the Gap radio program. Information, by the way, on the web at American Pastors Network. .net. Back with more right after this. 5.36. How do you get to be that late? Clock's driving, moving too fast today, I guess. We'll see if traffic is moving fast, too. Somehow doubt that. Let's get the latest update with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. Pastor Sam Rohrer is with us, president of the American Pastors Network. Pastor Sam, I want to turn a corner to another direction. I happen to read in the newspaper today that the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. has announced that it's going to remove two stained glass windows that honor Confederate generals that were apparently installed there in the 1950s. We know that on the heels of the Charlottesville, Virginia violence, there's been a lot of talk about many of these statues. Now, here in California, we don't have any such thing. So it, it, it's a little bit removed from us, I think, to, to fully understand. I, I guess at a level, I would liken some of this to what I saw in, um, in post-Soviet Russia, where in the months to first couple of years following the collapse of communism there, the Russians everywhere were going about the country tearing down statues of Lenin that had been in place since the 1920s. And I suppose at a level, we would kind of question, okay, all of these statues that are out there, they are symbols of a time that uh, is not a very proud one in American history. But then there's the other flip side to this that I'm curious to get your opinion on, and that is that it seems to me that Part of, yes, that period of time is is painful and people don't want to be reminded of it. And yet I wonder if, you know, the old adage, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. If these symbols, not done in a fashion that gives honor, certainly, to what the Confederates stood for, but rather to be a reminder for us as to that dark time in American history, should we be careful never to allow it to repeat again? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I I think what's at stake here, um, uh, Craig, is the and what I've tried to do. What I've tried to do is to help interject a narrative into this time when you consider uh, that there is a rage to purge uh, any memorial uh, because the memorial is not. It may have started in Charlottesville. With a with a statue there to General Robert E. Lee, but the fact of the matter was General Robert E. Lee was a very godly man. Um, he wasn't a, a, he wasn't he wasn't a, someone that was consumed with the worst of passions. Uh, there were a lot of heavy things that went into his decision, 
when he decided to to do what he did at that point in time. But that Charlottesville effort, which has really launched this effort to purge memorials and to really, in my opinion, purge this nation of many of the things of the past, have gone way beyond Confederate statues. You have the city of Baltimore that have uh, removed and there is defacing of uh, statues, for instance, of Christopher Columbus. Um, they, they extend to literally there is no end to which the intent by those who wish to purge uh, can change their rhetoric to demand that or to say that whatever that person is doesn't reflect their view. Well, I let, there, there's a curious line here that I wonder wh- where we need to draw. Uh, if, for example, we talk about, okay, statues that are there to memorialize uh, the Confederate soldiers, Confederate leaders, things of this sort. Okay, I get that. Well, then if we go to a cemetery that is largely occupied by Confederate soldiers, is not a tombstone a memorial of a sort? And do we go in there and then desecrate all of those graves? Now, again, I, I'm not, I want to be very careful here that my audience in San Francisco understands I am in no wise supportive of the Confederacy, and it's a lot of horrible things that it stood for, uh, to be sure. That said, where do we draw the line? Do we draw the line? And if we fail to draw that line, do we suddenly find ourselves picking an excuse for anything anybody feels is potentially offensive? I mean, then if we say, okay, well, Confederate statuary, that's that's not off limits. And then, okay, headstones of Confederate soldiers, well, those need to come down. Well, then somebody can walk into a cemetery and say, all these crosses, I'm offended by them, so they all need to come down too. I, I guess the question begs, Where do we draw the line? And does this, at the end of the day, really bring about healing between the races, better sense of understanding, and and move race relations forward, or does it just perhaps complicate things? Well, Craig, I think think the, the right place to go is to the Word of God. That's where I go to find help and uh, direction, and the Word of God does give us uh, direction, even in regard to the matter of memorials. And I like to go to the passage in Joshua, where God actually instructed the Israelites to create and establish a memorial. And and, And what they used were just 12 stones out of the riverbed of the Jordan River when they were crossing into the promised land. He told them to take up 12 stones, one for each tribe, pile them on the bank, and make a memorial. And then later in that passage, chapter 4, he told the people why it was there. And the reason for this was this, that when your children yet unborn look back at this pile of stones, this memorial, the question will be, why did somebody at some point in time think important to put it here? Ask the question. And then the reason was then you give them the answer. You remind them of all of the great things that God did for the nation of Israel, or for them. So memorials are always put up in place, wherever they are. They're, they're put up to somebody at some point in time chose that something that they established. It could be the Washington Monument, or it could be the pyramids in Egypt, or a headstone in a cemetery. They're put there to remind the people of someone who did something or of an event in time. And what God said, that's the teaching opportunity. You go to where that is and you say, this is so-and-so. He did thus and so in his life. This is what he stood for. This is what he stood against. And use it as an opportunity to relate to how that person related to God. It, was he a was he a good man because of what he believed about God and did, or did he do things that were evil and not good? A Lenin, a Stalin. Um, I, you know, frankly, I don't remember Craig that the nation of Israel or the Jews have demanded that the pyramids be torn down because they were slaves. They, they were built by slave labor, Israelites. Uh, frankly, I'm glad I'm glad that they weren't torn down. Because for Israel, 
the pyramids become a point of saying we were in bondage once but now we're free. Well, and I'll do you one equally as good. I've, I've always wondered from a Christian perspective when you go and visit Washington, D.C., and there is one of the best-known monuments, the Washington Monument, which is an obelisk, which is actually a Egyptian fertility symbol. And I'm thinking, really, is that appropriate in the nation's capital if you understand what that really stands for? And yet you don't see Christians protesting to suggest that we tear down the Washington Monument. Now, I know some people will rush in and say, well, wait a minute now, Craig, you're really talking apples and oranges here. I, I think at the end of the day, and we're, we're going to table this discussion for tonight um, because we're going to be doing some programming on this coming up later on in the next two weeks that dives a little deeper into this topic. I guess the question is, it's important for us to be mindful of some of the horrific events in American history, at least they never be repeated again. I'm thinking that if we're busy sanitizing everything, maybe that makes that job a bit more difficult. Maybe one idea might be, as I think uh, Pastor Rohrer has suggested, we use some of these things as teaching symbols. Maybe a plaque needs to go up to describe the events that led up to the Civil War and why there was a, a fight between the states and the eventual outcome and why it's important that we not necessarily adore or honor, but rather be mindful of those events as a part of American history. Otherwise, what do we do? Do we head off to uh, places like Hawaii and say, let's get rid of the the USS Arizona Memorial because it reminds us of a very evil and terrible period in, in American history as well? Um, I think learning opportunities here uh, are important ones. I, I will say this. I saw the story, as I mentioned, about the National Cathedral. I'm thinking... And help me understand in the first place why there are two Confederate generals uh, that are being depicted in stained glass inside of a church building. Struck me as very odd. At any rate, there is Pastor Sam Rohrer, president of the American Pastors Network. Information on the web, of course, at AmericanPastorsNetwork.net. As I say, we're going to talk more on this subject. It's an involved and complicated one. Um, I, I think we have to be careful to not seem as if we're honoring people that were involved in the bad side, if you will, of a very negative time in American history. But at the same time, let's be careful not to lose the memory of what happened and why it happened just like, you know, is it a painful reminder to allow Auschwitz um, or Dachau to continue to exist in Europe as a reminder of the Holocaust? Or would it be better just to bulldoze the whole thing down and put up condominiums? You know, I, I guess that's probably, at one level, the better thing to do. But then how quickly will we forget or can we not use that to point to and teach future generations? This is one of the most horrific periods in mankind. We should never forget that it happened, who it happened to, and why it happened, so that we can conduct ourselves and teach future generations to behave in an entirely different fashion than our forefathers. That certainly is the important message, I think, of maintaining the presence of some of the concentration camps in parts of Europe, and to also memorialize certainly those who perished there. And maybe we need to do a better job at the national dialogue concerning some of these Confederate statues. Again, here in California, we don't have them. Don't worry about them. I, I yeah, I've always kind of thought it was odd that many of them went up many, many years after the war between the states was fought. I mean, the two glass-stained windows in the National Cathedral were installed in 1952. A full near century after the war between the states was fought. What was the point of that? Some attitudes in this country have changed for the better. Unfortunately, some attitudes in this country have gotten worse, and there's a whole third group that seem to be oblivious to both positions. I think using any of this as a learning um, opportunity is important. 
I will say from an Italian-American perspective, yeah, there's concerns that Italian-Americans have about wanting to erase Columbus. Well, the terrible things that resulted from Columbus's arrival in America or India, wherever he thought he was going. <laughs> and then if you do that, do we also at the same time uh, to take away a part of one group's heritage or do we take away a part of the opportunity for it to be a teaching lesson? Something I think we need to give some thought to. And should this be job number one ahead of all else, or are there more immediate, more pressing issues that we need to address, like racial violence or the unfortunate circumstances that all too often uh, have occurred of discriminatory practices by certain police departments in certain areas against certain uh, certain minority groups. That issue has yet to entirely, I think, be resolved to um, our collective satisfaction. So there may be a few more pressing issues. In the meanwhile, you know, get a big blanket and cover them up till we can decide. I don't know. Uh, again, we're going to pursue this a bit more in depth and get a number of perspectives on this. And uh, when we do that, We'll, of course, invite your participation and thoughts as well. 5.54, that's what the clock is telling me. Oh, and Jarell is also telling me, Greg, I'm going to get out the shepherd's crook and drag you off this stage. Put a sock in it, Roberts, and let's let Michael Bennett have a few things to say here. All right, I, that my part's done, at least for the moment. We'll be back with more of Lifeline right now. Let's get more of traffic. The latest here on your Thursday ride home at just about 5 before the hour of 6 p.m. Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. What to say, what to say. That often is the challenge for a lot of believers as we are sharing our faith with others. Now, we know certainly that there's um, uh, sort of a dualistic component when it comes to uh, the whole matter of being a Christian. Certainly, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, and our neighbor is ourself. And we are also to go and to share the good news of this gospel into all of the world, uh, the great commandment and the great commission. And yet, for a lot of us, uh, the great Greek um, commandment, yeah, we, we can do okay with that, but we find ourselves oftentimes challenged, particularly in this day and age, in fulfilling our responsibility in partaking in the sharing of the Great Commission. Um, that sense of sharing your faith with someone who wishes to be combative, they want to get into an argument with you, you are fearful perhaps because you just don't want confrontation, you've never experienced sharing your faith with someone before, and you're afraid to open up the proverbial can of worms because there's this atheist in the next cubicle that's just been dying to pick a fight with you. How do you go about sharing your faith under these circumstances, particularly in a region like the San Francisco Bay Area where we are wrought with paganism and atheism and doubt and those that would feel as if anybody who believes in Christianity or the Jesus of the Bible must clearly be nuts. Well, Donald Johnson joins us to offer insights. He's written a new book called How to Talk to a Skeptic, an easy-to-follow guide for natural conversations and effective apologetics. And Donald, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me, Craig. I appreciate it. You come at this from a very rich educational background. I'll mention for the benefit of listeners, you have a BA in theology um, from San Jose Christian College, so you've been here in the Bay Area, an MA in Christian apologetics from Biola University, and an MA in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville. So you've you've gone to some pretty well-known schools and received quite the deep education. Now, sharing this whole topic of apologetics, some Christians hear that and they kind of get put off and they go, oh, that's for an expert. That is for somebody like Hank Hanegraaff or um, somebody like a Donald Johnson to engage in. I, as just the everyday average Christian, can't possibly be expected to engage a skeptic in some discourse of Christian apologetics, can I? <laughs> well, I think if you approached it that way, that you have to have the big uh, education um, yeah, you're right. We probably wouldn't, and that's one of the uh, problems. But no, I wrote the book specifically to address people who don't have the education, who uh, don't necessarily have the conversational 
debating skills of a William Lane Craig or someone like that. They're not interested in getting into the combative argument. Uh, no, this is this is for people who you know have that uncle who comes over on Thanksgiving and has a lot of questions or that coworker, and it's specifically addressed to show you that yeah, you can have a constructive conversation with even the most. Uh, hardened skeptic. And I guess at the end of the day, Don, this is not really about engaging in debate um, or demonstrating our um, uh, verbal skills at confrontation. Uh, it really comes down to that core issue of being ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, Craig. That's exactly when I think of apologetics. It's First Peter 3.15. It's the verse you just quoted. It's just having um, good questions and then the good answer, the, uh, the, the understanding of the Jesus story that you can share with people, but doing it in a way that's not going to lead to a dead end. So what is it about us as Christians, particularly in this day and age, and you've spent a good time here in the San Francisco Bay Area, so you're fully aware of, of some of the, the intellectual prowess of our Bay Areans here who uh, tend to um, uh, celebrate paganism and uh, atheism and, and uh, love to engage in barbed uh, debate with Christians and, and, and tear us down. Does some of this fear come out of a sense that, well, we, we're trying to avoid confrontation, um, we're, we're concerned we won't be able to articulately respond to their questions or their comments, and, and maybe a good dose of our own sense of anxieties in all of this? I just wonder how much of this goes to just the heart of a lot of believers today being uh, biblically illiterate and, and finding themselves and feeling themselves unprepared to share their faith. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of it is that we don't feel like we have those answers. But on the other hand, it's partially, I think, some mistakes that we make in approaching the skeptic that leads us into that defensive position. So, I mean, we're scared that we're not going to have the right answer. But I think in my approach, I've learned over the years, I mean, I used to be that guy. I used to be that guy who just liked to debate and always tried to have just the right answer and just the right comeback at, at the right time. And I learned over the years that doesn't actually usually end very well. You usually end up in a roadblock. And so now I, I stand back a little bit and ask a lot of questions at the beginning and try to listen a lot and move the, the conversation in a direction where you're not on the defensive all the time and you don't have to have all those answers. And you're actually trying to get the skeptic to do the thinking and to have some answers for their own views and how they understand the world and how they understand Christianity. So it's not so much, you're right, it's not so much that it's a battle between two people, but a constructive relationship-building conversation where both sides have to add something to the mix. Sadly, oftentimes these kinds of conversations end up in one feeling as if they have to defend the faith, meaning they're, they're, they're put on the defensive, and so here we might feel um, wholly short to answer challenges concerning the, uh, certain scientific points or uh, points related to uh, observations about so-called uh, errancy in Scripture, things of this sort. I mean, oftentimes we'll see this sort of distown, distilled down by some as a debate between um, faith or science, for example, or or the rational or irrational. So you're, you're not suggesting that we, we engage to set ourselves up for debate, but rather, what, engage a person? Is this as much about sharing our faith? Is it also getting the person that we're talking to to get them to share their heart and where they're coming from? Yeah, I think that's the key, is first of all to, to understand where they're coming from. And so on two levels, well, really on three levels, I ask them what kind of background they have, you know, tell me a little bit about your life, and if you have any experience in Christianity or the Church, and then I ask them what they think uh, to be true about the world, as far as uh, how do you answer the big questions of life. I understand that you reject Christianity. Okay, tell me what you do accept, though. Give me a positive case for something that you think is actually true, not just what you think is false. And then I ask them what they think Christianity actually teaches. And I think if you set out your conversation just, just trying to find out those three uh, facts about the person in a very relational way and doing a lot of listening and not, not defending Christianity at all, not jumping in when they throw an objection or, or some sort of uh, sarcastic comment, you know, just, just let that go and just listen. And what ends up happening is you can develop a comparison of worldviews. So way down the line, after you've learned a lot about the person, it's, it's given you a chance to then compare 
the Christianity that you know to be true from the Bible with their worldview and the Christianity they hold. And, and you'll inevitably find out that they don't hold to the Christianity that you do, that they're rejecting a, a, a straw man argument or they're just a caricature of what the Bible teaches. And when you set it up like that, you ask a few questions, you set up a comparison of worldviews, it actually does give you a chance to come in and then share the gospel, but not in a preachy way. You're just clarifying what Christianity actually teaches. You can say, oh, well, that's interesting. I understand where you're coming from, but let me share with you how I understand the Bible and how I understand Christianity, and then we can, uh, we can talk on that level. So it's a lot of clarification and sharing the, bio, or sharing the gospel, then, in a non-confrontational, very relational way. You use a word that I want to have you elaborate upon when we return after a timeout. You use the word relational, and I think there can be some important insights and keys extracted from this one word as we talk about how to talk to a skeptic. My guest is Donald Day Johnson. This is his new book, by the way, newly published by to put my cheaters on here, Bethany House, and you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Jarrell is laughing in there. Hey, you reach a certain age, kiddo, you know, you, you got to put the cheaters on. Also, the book available through Amazon.com, and uh, we'll share more in our conversation. Dig a bit deeper into this topic. How do you go about successfully sharing your faith, giving that answer for the hope that lies within as you talk to a skeptic? Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 